Okay, time for a pop quiz. It's me, Cindy. And which of these words can you currently use to describe something or someone cool? Fat, that would be P-H-A-T, coolio, or groovy? The correct answer is none. They're all over. O-V-E-R. It's hard when you're, you know, not in the thick of things to stay updated. But when I texted my friend Mike over at Tire Country that I had to bring my fat car in for an oil change, P-H-A-T. I was being kind of tongue-in-cheek because there's nothing remotely fat about a Subaru Forester. He texted back, fat? To which I replied, like I was schooling him, you know, fat, like awesome. To which he replied, LOL, look at you with your 90s lingo. (laughs) I was humiliated. Well, I guess I'd better get up to speed. And since I'm doing the work, I might as well share in case you're stuck in another era too. Let's update our lingo. So here's a little of what I found not to use and what to use instead. Groovy, which was cool in the 60s, but probably not even then. The truth be told, I always thought that was a word created by an ad guy or a movie executive in response to, give me a word one of those hippie kids might use, talking about, oh, a tie-dye shirt or a VW bus. Really, did anybody ever actually say groovy and mean it? Today, if you're reacting to tie-dye, you're like, ew. Well, an acceptable response to something you do like could be Gucci. Let's try it in a sentence. Oh, that Maserati is so Gucci. Another G word, gone the way of the caveman, gnarly, was another synonym of cool in the 70s and 80s. In the 90s, but not anymore, there was rad. In the early 2000s, coolio. And sick, as in that is or he, she, it is sick, got a workout from the 90s all the way through 2000s. But if something is really great today, it's goat, like greatest of all time, or you can work the adverb slays. You slay, I slay, he slays, they slay, she slays. Speaking of she slays, did you hear about the Australian woman who just became the world's oldest skydiver? True story. The no doubt spunky and fearless Irene O'Shea and her instructor did a tandem jump to celebrate her 102nd birthday. Stepping out of an airplane at 14,000 feet, dropping at a rate of 136 miles an hour, which is faster than they drive on the LIE, before they actually opened a parachute. It wasn't even her first jump. She started the tradition to celebrate her 100th birthday. Gotta hand it to her. I don't know that I would ever or will ever have the raw nerve or the willingness to die of panic that it would take to jump out of an airplane with or without an instructor. I tried the baby version twice. Parasailing seems safe-ish because you and your giant kite-like canopy are tethered. You take off from, you presumably return to the back of a motorboat. My first time as I rose up over the unbelievably beautiful peacock blues and greens of the Bahama beach, I heard a clicking sound. Click, click, click. I knew it was the sound of the hook they'd connected to my harness, and I started freaking, thinking the hook had not been closed. And because I was climbing up 800 feet above the boat without any hope of surviving should I slip out, I was afraid to look and see if my greatest fear was true. It all sounds very irrational now, but when you're eight or nine stories above the ground and you think you're this close to falling, there is no room for rational. Obviously, I didn't fall and didn't die, and the hook probably was latched safely. 
I have to say, I never did look, even after they reeled me back down to the back of the boat. I was just so grateful to be back on land and alive. You think I would have learned the lesson, parasailing, not for me. But no, I had to try it one more time. This time, I told myself I'd been overreactive. I had missed the joy of floating in the sky, taking in the spectacular bird's eye view, and enjoying the peace and solitude. So I said yes. This time, Catherine said yes, too. She was maybe 11 or 12 at the time, and we were going to do a tandem sail. I watched carefully as they hooked us both up. All was good until we started going up, me first, then my precious daughter just beneath me lifting from the boat, and about halfway up it struck me. If she fell, I would be powerless to save her. Really, what a nightmare thought, and hadn't I seen this coming, and it was too late to do anything except to try to create something of a safety net. With my feet. Yeah, I know. Sounds completely crazy, but it was all I had, so I flexed my two feet under her as though her life depended on it, imagining if she began to slip, my feet would catch her. Well, she didn't slip. We both landed safely, and all was well, except my two feet having been super flexed for the duration of the time were hideously cramped. I remember the panic and the post-parasailing foot pain. Catherine, on the other hand, loved it and having no crazy phobias and not knowing that I'd spent the entire time staving off disaster probably would go again in a heartbeat, giving an opportunity. But no more parasailing for me ever. Unless when I get to be 100, I somehow adopt a new perspective. But what are the odds of that? You know, the crazy thing about fear and worrying is it's my brain. Shouldn't I be able to control how it's reacting to the world? But of course, if that was a thing and we all had that, I guess psychiatry wouldn't be a thing. But there are things we can do to wrangle the upper hand in the battle with our gray matter sometimes. Thanks, psychiatry. There's a woman who's a psychologist and an art therapist. She's created an interesting list of ways to employ art to cope or tamp down or control certain emotions. Like, for instance, she says if you're worried, do a little origami. That folding paper helps you solve or work through problems. Now, I was a little skeptical, so I did some research to try to understand exactly what about doing origami would help you with worrying. It seems that there is something to this suggestion. Origami provides mental and physical stimulus, mental concentration. You use two hands, so you're activating both the left and right parts of your brain. So it seems like while you're folding a piece of paper into a tiny crane, your brain is free to disengage from the problem and have some free time wandering around. So you're either getting a break from worrying or maybe you're actually having an opportunity to work out a solution so you won't be worrying as much or at all anymore. Her list also includes drawing a rainbow if you're sad. For whatever reason, this one does make perfect sense, and I have seen this suggestion other times as well. She says if you're stuck, draw drawing spirals to inspire you to keep moving. And if you're angry, drawing a simple pattern of lines will calm you down. Hmm. But the one that struck me the most was, make a collage to help you understand your wishes. And I was like, what? Or small world? Because, you know, the vision board... Here's what I didn't think of that makes perfect sense. Even if you're not going, this is what I want in my life, 
The very process of paging through magazines and even saving images on Pinterest to collect things is you're capturing what appeals to you. It reminded me of the interior design course I took in college. We were tasked with compiling a book of photos and images of colors and rooms and furniture styles that we would like in our imaginary homes. You know, the one we live in where money is no object. That was some fun. Oh, I like this. I'll take it. Oh, that's pretty. Can I have that? Oh, that color's lovely. Done. So now I'm going to go back to the vision board idea with a new goal, just to assemble a collage of things that make me happy. Maybe I'll just make a collage of empty candy wrappers because what I ate that left the wrappers empty undoubtedly made me happy. Or dogs. Maybe I'll just make a collage full of dogs. I'll let you know how I do. But I'm pretty sure whatever it is, it's going to be really rad. No, Coolio, no. Uh, it's going to slay. Yeah, it's going to slay.